the things we were encouraged to do in the context of evangelism uh, was to gather stories. You know, stories about what God has done in our lives and what God has done in other people's lives. And Helen has given us so many good stories, certainly, about what Jesus can do in somebody's life. And we're going to talk about that a little bit this evening when we gather uh, this evening. So, but gathering stories that glorify God and, and help people that don't know him to know him. Sometimes it's difficult for people to take on board scripture or theology, um, but they have a job denying the stories that we can tell them about the goodness of God. <clears throat> okay, um, we're back in Genesis. Okay, we, we've, we've been doing Genesis over quite a long period of time with various breaks, and last week we, we had a break for the Relational Mission Sunday. And I hope that um, you're getting to know a little bit about uh, what Relational Mission's about, our involvement in there. We'll be praying for some church plants this evening. Uh, so do come, and, and I know it, sometimes it's hard. If you're not a leader and go to these great meetings, it's quite hard to catch up. So it, it may be, you may need to be a bit intentional about that, but do come and, uh, and share in that this evening. So we're continuing in our series in Genesis, and um, two weeks ago, um, David Young spoke from chapter 22, which describes Abraham's huge challenge of faith when God asked Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son. It's a very familiar story, a very challenging story, one that we sometimes find hard to deal with. But David showed us that this challenge to Abraham was primarily about him, that's Abraham, growing in his relationship with God, growing in faith, building faith in the promises that God had made to him over a period of about 25 years. And David reminded us that God does not want us to stay where we are. It's not an option to stay where we are, in our comfort zone, um, but to move on with God. And that will mean challenges for us. It will mean exploits of faith. God will lead us into things that um, cause us to trust in him. Uh, we have to cast ourselves on him uh, because we're not able in ourselves. And we trust that growth will come that in, involves challenges and sometimes sacrifice. So that was a really good word from David um, a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> the next big challenge that Abraham faced was that of finding a wife for his son Isaac. And that's what we were looking at this morning, Genesis chapter 24. So if you haven't already found that, because the reference is in the bulletin, you might like to turn to that. Just before we do so, chapter 23 is about the death of Sarah at the age of 127. And um, pretty good age, wasn't that great? Eh? And um, her burial and how Abraham managed to purchase a piece of land from the Hittites amongst whom he was dwelling. So he's an alien and a stranger. It, it, not, nothing belongs to him at all. He's among uh, these um, uh, alien folk, as it were. And um, there's a cave in this piece of land, and that's where he wants to use it as a burial chamber uh, for Sarah. But although the primary intention was to provide a secure resting place for Sarah, it was an opportunity uh, for uh, Abraham to gain legal deed to a piece of land. I say he's an alien and a stranger, he owns nothing, even though God has promised him this land. And this, if you like, is a little foothold in the land. 
right? He legally owns this piece of land with a cave. And it's in the land of Canaan, the promised land. And Abraham himself, later on, will be buried there. Interesting that chapter 23 closes with an account of Abraham's family that he left many years ago um, there in um, Mesopotamia. Uh, and uh, I think it was about 60 years before that that he'd left there. And he obviously has some knowledge of his family there because it's detailed at the end of chapter 23. And Abraham uses this knowledge um, in the process of seeking a wife uh, for his son. Um, I've called the, the message today a match made in heaven uh, with, a, with a question mark. And um, it's a phrase that we use like as a metaphor to describe a good marriage that we observe. We say, this marriage is great. And uh, it must have been made in heaven. You heard that phrase? Yeah, okay. So what do you think? Are some marriages made in heaven? How about your marriage? You think that was made in heaven? <laughs> Interesting. As we read this story, I think it kind of reinforces that idea with this story in particular. But I think it's more... Um, about faithfulness and obedience than about the inevitability of, of, a, of a love match. <clears throat> Interestingly, the Bible has far more to say as to how married couples should behave towards one another than it does about finding a spouse, uh, let alone an ideal one. All right? it's, that's what the Bible's about. And uh, the Bible, in bi um, biblical marriages, there are obligations of love and faithfulness, welfare and commitment, no matter how the marriage came to be in the first place. If you are married under God, you have these obligations to care and love for one and uh, care for one another and love one another. And um, so the grounds for divorce are never because the couple say, well, perhaps we shouldn't have got married in the first place. Perhaps we weren't suited to one another. The Bible never covers that issue. If you're married, you have obligations uh, and you, you are to live to the glory of God in your marriage. Today we're going to look at one of the most um, beautiful stories in the Bible and it's a love story which according to Phil Moore, whose commentaries we've recommended to you, um, he says that this is better than Elizabeth Bennett and Mr Darcy that it's, it's better than Jane Eyre and Mr. Rochester. So some of you obviously read the classics or maybe you've seen the adaptation on television. Hey. But you know what I mean. He says it's better than that. And yet, by modern standards of how people fall in love and live together, it seems all back to front. Uh, today, many relationships start with sex don't they? We have to say, and the television programs reinforce that. The soaps or stories, a, a, a couple meet, they go out for a, on a date, and nine times out of ten, they're finishing up in the bedroom, aren't they? On the, well, that's right. And um, you know, only to find later when the passion subsides that the couple have very little in common in the everyday things of life in terms of values and expectations. They may have been lovers, but they're not good friends. They find they've got nothing in common and there's no foundation for a lasting companionship. And of course, some go and look for some passion elsewhere. It happens, doesn't it? <clears throat> anyway, for those who love God, 
there is a better way. There's a better way. Where sex is the culmination of a romance fashioned under the providence of God. Um, and where a, a people are obedient to his commands. Um, we might say that this story that we're going to look at um, um, is a story of an arranged marriage. And we could well say, well, does that have any relevance for us in our Western society, our Western culture? However, because God is in it, and God is right in the middle of all this wonderful romance, God is in it, there's a beauty and a purity uh, in the whole process that makes for a foundation for marriage far more substantial than we might find in our so-called liberated society. Before we finish today, I hopefully will tell you um, about Christian courtship today um, in another country but has great echoes of this story. It is possible even today. <clears throat> Just to save my voice and so you have a, um, a better voice, Joe's going to read uh, the, ch the chapter for us. Um, we're, I've taken a piece out of the middle because it's very long, but I just thought we just need to hear the whole story. So Joe's going to read that for us with a bit missing in the middle. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge over all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, <laughs> The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. 
Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman, to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered her, his journey or not. When the camels had finished their drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She, had, she added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. <clears throat> Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelet on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord, why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came into the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then the food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. The servant then uh, tells Laban what has happened so far and why he's there. And we pick up the story at verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. 
Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and the servant brought out jewellery of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. And so he sent away Rebekah, their sister, her, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. May your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and the young woman, women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Laharai and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. <clears throat> yes, that's a, bit, um, that's a bit long, but I thought it's good to have the story, to hear the whole story. So the first few verses of that, of that chapter, um, Isaac is now 40 years old, and you wonder why Abraham didn't kick him out of the nest and say, go and find a wife for yourself. I think if it had been us and we'd had a 40-year-old lad in the home, unless there was a good reason to keep him there, we would have been nudge, nudge, wink, wink, isn't it about time you found yourself uh, a, a wife? Um, but he didn't do that. Um, firstly, because it was not the custom to do that. Um, families arrange suitable spouses for their children. And back in chapter 21, um, Hagar, who was the maidservant of Sarah, through whom um, Abraham had a son, Ishmael, um, she was, and Ishmael was sent out. They were told to go. And uh, Hagar went and found a wife for Ishmael from her own people, from the Egyptians. Secondly, Abraham did not want a daughter-in-law from among the idolatrous Canaanite women um, amongst whom they dwelt, but from his own family, from his brother 
Nahor, who was back in Mesopotamia, that they had left all those years ago. And there was, this was one of perhaps the few places that he could find, that Abraham could find a wife for his son who worshipped Yahweh, as he did. So that's why they went there. And of course, you remember, um, he had knowledge uh, of, these, uh, of his family back there, which was recorded at the end of chapter 23. And of course, God loves all people, including the idolatrous Canaanite women. But God had called Abraham and his uh, descendants uh, to be a light to the world, to be a light to the Gentiles. And it, it was important that Isaac married within God's covenant people, God's covenant people, and not amongst the idolatrous um, people that they were living among. Because there will be then less chance uh, that Isaac will be lured away into idolatry and frustrate God's plan. Over the, if you know anything about the Old Testament, time and time again, the Israelites got involved with the idolatrous people around them. And they lost their faith. Their faith was compromised uh, as a result of that. And um, the same is true today. Um, even though God uh, loves all people the same, um, he calls us to look for our life's partner amongst God's covenant people. I'm talking about Christians now, and of course it's God's new covenant people, um, arranged for us through uh, the blood of Christ. We are there because we are in Christ. And um, the Apostle Paul puts it like this, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. This is an agricultural picture. Um, a yoke of oxen would pull a plough and they would have a yoke across their shoulders, a wooden yoke. And it was very important that the oxen were matched, either in strength or size. Otherwise, the plough would be pulled all over the place. One would pull against the other. And what Paul is saying is that if you're going to make a life's partner, uh, then you meet, need to be equally matched. And... Um, you know, if a non, if a Christian marries a non-Christian, there will be be an inevitable compromise. Um, there is a conflict of loyalties. Uh, if you're married to someone, you have obligations towards that person, uh, and it obviously will bring a a, a conflict of interest. Um, I think this can be um, particularly hard uh, in church life um, for ladies, because there seem to be more ladies than men. And there don't seem to be many eligible men in some churches, you know. So if you found yourself an eligible man, um, then you were doing well, I think. But I know that um, when, uh, when Joe and I were, uh, were courting and uh, uh, back in our, our, our first church, um, there were those who, who married non-Christians and maybe with the, the idea, well, um, I will influence them, I will bring them to Christ. But very often it happened the other way that they were drawn away from the faith, sadly. It's not inevitable, of course, it's not inevitable. But, uh, and so, um, this was so important that, that um, Isaac was married into the covenant people. Abraham was determined that Isaac's wife should come from his own people. He was all equally determined um, that, he, that if there should be a suitable wife among his family, that he should, Isaac should not go and live among them. He said to the servant, don't take Isaac to go and live among them. This is because it was to the land of Canaan that God was giving this family. 
It was to this particular land, the promised land that God was giving Abraham and his descendants. And this is where Isaac was to follow God's plan with successive generations. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and so on. Those families uh, that that, um, would be successive generations until 2,000 years later that same land would see uh, the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So it was important not to compromise uh, what God had commanded. And uh, notice that there was no forcing of the issue. The woman would not be taken back against her will. Uh, The bride must come willingly. The servant would only be responsible uh, for giving the invitation. The outcome would be entirely in God's hands. And Abraham was confident of this. He will send his angel before you, he said. And so God will oversee uh, this enterprise. In verse 10, the servant sets off on a long journey, reckoned to be about 460 miles. Very long, isn't it? With camels. Um, Knowing that he was not only on a mission for his master, but he was on a mission from God. Very clearly, the servant understood this. And when he arrives, he makes for the well, which any thirsty traveller would have done. But it was also the place where the women would come to draw water. And he prays to God. That's the first thing he does. He asks God. Uh, and he asked God to answer in a particular way and he expects an answer and God answers before the servant has finished speaking that's verse 15 Rebecca comes to draw water and passes the test that the servant had put before the Lord and the servant worships God and is taken to meet the family and he is received well not only because he's a visitor, he's a traveller, as they would be in those days. Hospitality was high on the list of that kind of a community, but he was recognised as coming uh, from um, the same family. And he was received well, and food was put before him, but he refused to eat it until he had discharged his burden. Right? He'd got a message to give these people, and he tells them. <coughs> And um, in verse 50 and 51, Laban and uh, Bethuel acknowledge that this is of God and agree to release Rebekah. This, this kind of justifies why Abraham sought uh, for a wife among these people. Whether he knew or whether he just trusted that, that these were worshippers of Yahweh as well as he was and um, that, that they would respond appropriately. Because God had spoken, they agreed to release her. But quite naturally, um, they wanted to hold on to her for a little while. You don't lose a girl that quickly, do you? However, the servant insisted that he needed to go straight away. And then something very unusual happened. The family asked Rebecca an unusual question, and we might miss that question in our 21st century or 21st yeah, 21st century of, of speed dating and, and casual arrangements and so on. And, um, and here in the 21st century BC, it was almost unheard of. Rebecca's mother and brother asked her a question that none of her friends would be asked. And it's this, will you go with this man? Will you, are you willing to go with this man? Because they, they, usually they were arranged marriages. There was, there was no question. But in this case, 
the question was asked. Abraham was looking for a willing bride for his son. I will go, she said. Let's just read the end of this, the story again from um, verse 62. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field towards evening and he lifted up his eyes and saw and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it's my master. She took her veil and covered herself and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And uh, just a, a, a lovely end to that story. I guess she became the matriarch of the family then, as um, Sarah had been. <clears throat> I did promise to tell you about something that goes on uh, in another country regarding courtship. This is a story or an account that John Hosier told us about. Remember John came to us earlier this year. Um, he spent lots of time in India. And this is a story from the New Frontiers churches or an account from the New Frontiers churches in India. How they go about courtship. Right? Let me say there is no casual dating in the church. It's not done to casually date um, somebody of the opposite sex. Uh, anything that happens is with the intention of being married. Okay, it doesn't mean that you will automatically will be married, but if there's going to be any courting, it's with the intention of being married. Now, there's a culture of discipleship in the church, and let's have this couple. There's Dershan as the man, and, and Shoba is the, the girl. And Dershan has been looking at Shoba and thinks she would make a wonderful wife for me. So he goes to his discipler, the person who's discipling him, who has some spiritual oversight over his life, and he says to him, um, I've been looking at um, Shoba and I wonder whether she might be the, the wife for me. And uh, the, 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 that disciple will pray with him and say, OK, I'll have a word with her discipler. So he goes and speaks to Shoba's disciple and explains everything that's going on. Okay? And if together they agree that they would make a good match spiritually and practically, um, it would be good for the families, then Shoba is, is asked whether um, she would be in agreement with this and whether she would like to court Dershan. And if she agrees, um, then... Um, that's put in, pro in, 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 in process, uh, but it's very much chaperoned, all right, for the protection of the couple. And John said there's just been some wonderful love stories, wonderful romances that have come out of that. And of course, it isn't just the couple doing their thing, but those who have, have spiritual responsibility for them, uh, the church family, are totally behind what is happening. Now, you might say, well, we... We, we couldn't do that here, uh, it's, it wouldn't work here, <clears throat> but I do believe there are some principles in there that are important. That God was clearly right at the, in the centre of bringing this couple together, and as John said, there's been some wonderful romances. 
Anyway, I'll leave that with you to, to work out. But I just thought that was just very interesting. And I thought it was great. I just thought how lovely uh, that was, that this couple should be brought together in this way. Um, other important messages um, uh, involve us uh, in two ways. We now come to the application, really. And God, our Father, intends that his son, his son, uh, he's seeking a son, uh, sorry, God our Father is seeking a bride uh, for his son from all peoples, from every race, nation, tribe uh, and tongue. And the last chapters of the Bible and the book of Revelation, uh, they tell us that the, the whole of history will culminate in an event called the wedding of the Lamb. And uh, the people of God who the Father has gathered over the centuries will be the bride, the wife of of the Lamb. You know that in the last chapters it talks about this city that comes down out of heaven um, as a bride adorned for her husband. It isn't a city. I know we get details of the city but it's the church. It's the bride of Christ uh, coming down out of heaven. It will be the focus of the end of history and the father intends that his bride must be willing so he commissions his servants to cross deserts and rivers and seas and climb mountains and go to the ends of the earth uh, to see who will respond to this message of salvation, who will respond and become part of the bride of Christ. And um, he expects all of us, just like Abraham's servant, to give up our comforts and rights in order to take this message around the world. And of course many people have done that. They've left the comforts of these shores, become missionaries, um, in sometimes in bearable, very difficult circumstances, to take this message um, of salvation uh, around uh, the world. And um, even if it's rejected, we are to take this message. And it will be rejected by some, we know that. But just like the servant, if it's rejected, we are released from our responsibility. The responsibility rests uh, with God. And just as the servant did not compromise the mission by taking Isaac to the distant land, to Mesopotamia, if the, if the woman would not come back to Canaan, so we must not compromise the message. All right? We must not compromise the gospel, even if people won't accept it. We must not say, well, you won't accept it. Okay, let's knock off a couple of these things and... Actually, what you only, all you need to believe is this, this and this, and you can become a Christian. No, we must never do that. We must never compromise the message. But, of course, we need to contextualise, we need to contextualise uh, the message. In, this, in other words, we have to speak to people in a way that they can relate to in this generation. So we will use um, various things like the internet, Twitter and Facebook and whatever we can to promote the gospel... Um, we'll put on all sorts of events that years ago would never be thought of. Uh, but the message must never be compromised, as it was not to be compromised um, with uh, um, Abraham's servant. So firstly, we're commanded to call a people to leave their old life and be united with Christ. And for some, it will mean leaving family and following God um, to a foreign land. And... Uh, this, there will be opposition and delay, but God's plan will succeed. Jesus 
will not be robbed of his bride. Jesus will not be robbed of his bride. Even though Abraham had huge um, promises over his life and his descendants, he needed to be obedient to God in the working out of these promises. The fact that God gives promises, they don't happen automatically unless people um, cooperate with him in the working out of these promises. He had to be obedient in the way God wanted him to fulfil them. And so we have terrific promises over us as Christians. The one is that Jesus said, I will be with you until the end of the age. But it was in the context of disciples being obedient. He said, go and make disciples of all nations and I will be with you until the end of the age. So Jesus is with us as we go. As we go and make disciples, Jesus is with us. And we're to call people to be the bride of Christ from right across the world. Sadly, um, sorry, not sadly, secondly, <laughs> secondly, we need a quick change of costume. Uh, we have to take off our, our travel clothes, um, our clothes for pioneering. Um, years ago, it might have been our anorak, but they're, they're out of fashion now, I think. Um, and um, our pioneering clothes, and we have to put on our wedding clothes, in fact, a wedding dress because we're not just the servant in the story, but we're also Rebecca. We're not just those who are servants and then, then stand by to see this bride gathered, because we are called to be part of the bride, not just the messenger. We are now betrothed to Jesus, the bridegroom, and together with all those who love him and are called according to his purpose, we will be the centre of attraction when Jesus returns to take his bride. I refer back again to that wonderful picture of the church, the bride of Christ, coming down out of heaven. This will be the focus of the end of the age. We will be the focus of the end of the age when Jesus comes to take his bride. It will be the culmination of all world history when Jesus comes to take his bride. I think that's absolutely fantastic. You know, Rebecca did not seek Isaac and we did not seek Jesus, but he sought us and he won us at immeasurable cost and brought us to himself. And in spite of our weaknesses and failings, his grace is upon us. <clears throat> I'm sure that you've um, all noticed in the news this week another terrible story in another branch of the church where children have been abused uh, in, a, in a church institution. And you think, and, I, don't know, I don't know about you, but I find it absolutely devastating. Now, we don't know whether the people that perpetrate these crimes were true Christians or not, but it was the, the whole um, uh, organisation was under uh, one particular branch of the church. And we look at the church and we think sometimes, is Jesus coming back for this? Is what Jesus is coming back for? But the thing is, the grace of God is not only there to save us, uh, but to make us ready for Jesus' return. God's grace uh, is upon us. And in spite of our weakness, weaknesses and failings, he will present us to himself spotless and without blemish. That doesn't mean to say that we don't make ourselves ready, that we don't live lives uh, to please him, 
um, it was Peter who said that, that as we live holy lives, we actually hasten the day when Jesus comes back. So it's not that, um, that we're not to do nothing, but in terms of the way we will be presented to Jesus, it's another measure of God's grace. We will be spotless and without blemish. And just as Isaac looked upon Rebekah and he loved her, I just thought it was wonderful that all this preparation, all that's gone before, and he looked upon her and he loved her. And Jesus will look on his bride and love her for eternity. Can you just picture that? I don't know what that's going to look like at all. I just think it's wonderful. And, um, you know, we might think that the story of Isaac and Rebecca uh, is the most wonderful um, love story ever told, but the most wonderful love story is the story of Jesus and his bride. A match made in heaven, um, you bet it is. You bet that this match that is with Jesus and his bride is made in heaven. Let me say, I've made some comments about um, uh, how Christian people should perhaps find a life's partner. And for many of us, we probably didn't do it that way for, for various reasons. We didn't, and some of you, all right, may even now have um, spouses who are not Christians. And let me say, God is not look, <coughs> causing you to look back with regret. God says, you are now married. You now know how to live as married people. And there needs to be no recriminations at all about if we didn't do it that way. But it's good to see how we might encourage younger people uh, to find a life's partner and to keep God in the centre. Let me just read from the end of Jude. Um, this is really about God's ability to do what we can't do. We can't make ourselves holy and pure uh, to be part of God's bride, but God will do it. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. I, I love that. God is going to present us to himself. How? With great joy. Right? We are going to be spotless. We are going to be given garments suitable, um, holy garments suitable uh, for this wedding. And he goes on, to the only God our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Let's pray. Hmm. Father, we thank you that you've given us these Old Testament stories and uh, as the Apostle Paul has said, these are uh, allegories in many cases of, of how we are to live. They're examples that we can um, uh, take note of and help us to live in our Christian life. So Father God, we thank you and we praise you that Abraham and the servant were obedient to you. They did not compromise their mission. And we ask you, Lord, that as we take the gospel into the world, um, Lord, even though we may find all sorts of creative ways of expressing the gospel to people, Lord, who've, who know nothing about you, Lord, help us not to compromise the message, but to be obedient and to call many um, to, to be the obedience of faith, to come and find their salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, will you help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <coughs> Thank you.
Go th- um, there'll be opportunity for prayer afterwards. The ministry team will be at the back. Otherwise, it's 